up, skeptics? Welcome to another episode of Reason to Doubt, your source for all things skeptical. I am Jordan, joined by Jared. Today, we are diving back into Jesus mythicism. We are going to be returning to our book review of Mything in Action. I know I say it every time. Love the title. It is a book written by David Fitzgerald, uh, and it is a book written for atheists and skeptics primarily to argue that we should all believe that Jesus did not exist as a historical person. It is a book made in three volumes. So we're basically starting at the beginning, going through the end. This is number two in the review. The last time we talked about uh, David's claims about the academic freedom of biblical scholars and some of how we, his claims kind of went further than the evidence he presented. So uh, so today, you can go check the other one if you want. Today, we're not going to be focusing on the religious beliefs of those scholars. We're going to be talking about their actual scholarship, which is an improvement. That's what we should be talking about. Yes. Um, in fact, in this episode, we are going to be in agreement with David uh, more often than not, I would say, or on, on a lot time. of things. Yeah, yeah, more often than last time, for sure. So, um, and, um, so this, this particular episode is going to focus on mainly chapter three um, in the first volume. Uh, and that title of that chapter is, who, why do men, who do men say that I am? Right. right. I got that wrong, but who do men who say, men that, say I that I am? <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, obviously, the agreement that we're voicing now for David is to lull everyone into a false sense of security, uh, not because we have any kind of integrity or intellectual honesty, obviously. Right. Uh, so be sure Completely. to let us know in the comments if that's accurate. Okay. So. Um, let's jump right into David's points. Uh, David starts out this chapter by bringing up what I think is actually a really good point, and that is that many people seem to project their own beliefs, their own modern causes backwards onto Jesus. You can see this if you walk into basically any church. Just pick a Sunday and just go church to church to church and listen to who they say Jesus is and what he represents, and every single church will have a different answer. Yes, for some of them, Jesus is a countercultural revolutionary. He's fighting for the oppressed, and he's put down by the authorities in his day. And then you go to the church across the street, and Jesus is a champion of conservative family values, and is also a capitalist and wants to, you know, <laughs> put down the commies, you know. <laughs> and another one, Jesus is like somehow riding a tank with an assault rifle. Uh, it's it, and any cool, basically yeah. whatever Jesus you want, that you can find proof text to cover it, you know. And so David rightly points this out. Uh, he says, it seems no matter where you fall on the religio, socio, political spectrum, it's as if there's a Jesus made to order just for you. Yes, that's very true. I mean, and we have to remember too, that this is chapters looking at trying to find the historical Jesus, right? So we're not so much concerned about the Jesus of faith, but we have to understand that the Jesus of faith impacts how people are viewing the Jesus of history. So, Right. It, it is true though, one person can have multiple aspects there. You know, people are complex beings. So it's possible that Jesus life could have different meanings, different people, and still like they're not completely making it up or them necessarily being wrong. However, Jesus is not living today. He lived in a very different time with a different cultural context, speaking a different language, different norms, delivering his message to the people of his day. And so if you find yourself reading someone's like reconstruction of Jesus, or you're trying to do your own reconstruction, if you find Jesus taught like is is perfectly in step with like the issues of today, right where you would like him to be, not saying you're wrong, mm. but you may want to like take a step back and reassess for a second, right? Like it stands to reason that this this person, whatever he was, two thousand years ago, 
probably whatever he's saying should feel a little weird if you're reading it now because the cultural context is completely different. I mean, read Beowulf. That stuff is weird as hell. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Very weird. Yeah. Yeah. And um, it's almost like the puddle analogy. So it's like, man, this Jesus like fits me perfectly. Like it was like tailor made for me. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. so another good point that Jesus, that Jesus, another good point that David brings up is that the Jesus of faith, so the religious Jesus, the Jesus of worship, and the Jesus of history, the physical person who we believe existed, are two different things, right? And evidence for the Jesus of history doesn't constitute evidence for the Jesus of faith, except to the point where, like, he existed. In order to have a Jesus of faith, you'd need one to have physically existed, so to that extent— one serves the other, but like, if you had solid evidence that Jesus existed, that wouldn't tell you that he walked on water, you know, turned water into wine or whatever, you know. So uh, many apologists are very quick to point to the consensus of scholars that Jesus existed and point to facts like that, and then use that as to just say, okay, so all the scholars agree with me that Jesus existed, but the Jesus they're saying is the miracle-working Jesus, right? But yeah. the Jesus that the scholars are in agreement of is a very different Jesus, right? Yes. <laughs> Yeah, uh, Bart Ehrman, who probably mentioned it later on this episode, uh, is definitely one of those atheist scholars who believes that there was a Jesus of history, but he definitely doesn't believe in the water walking, you know, miracle working Jesus that was in first first century right. Judea. So, and even many religious scholars who are you know biblical historians, they may personally believe that Jesus did all these miracles, but they are usually careful to distinguish that from their history. Like, here's what I do as a historian. Here's I'm publishing in a historian, like in a historical journal. And then like, they can believe what they want on Sunday, but they keep that out of their history basically. Because when they're doing their scholarship, they reserve and they couch their bets to say, this is what I can say about the historical Jesus. Now I do think it's fair. And and David will bring up some points later that some of those things that they're trying to couch in history are still clouded and tainted with some of that Jesus faith. Uh, It's just, going to happen so right i mean no one is totally immune to their biases right correct you just have to be aware of them and try to adjust them okay so speaking of scholarly consensus though david reiterates the point that he made last episode with the majority of biblical scholars are employed by religious institutions that restrict their academic freedom that's false uh or at least if it's true the evidence that david presents is not sufficient for us to say it's true Check the last episode for a full detailed rundown of what that is, okay? But then, to his credit, at least in, in the last episode, he made it sound like the entire field is just completely corrupt, throw it all out, right? Everybody. It's tainted. Burn it all yeah, down. That's right. Burn the heretic. Uh, in this chapter, to his credit, he kind of rolls that back a little bit, and he says, Numerous secular biblical scholars who aren't beholden to any doctrinal view of Jesus and happily do have religious or real academic freedom to investigate the matter exist. So... He acknowledges that, and he's going to talk about those today, which is great. Awesome. That is exactly who we should be talking about, right? The yeah. real, so, actual academics. So we agree with him there, but it seems weird that he's contradicting what he said in the first couple of chapters, so hey, whatever. But You know what? That was that was the past. That was a whole chapter ago. He's a new man now. It's a new man, new book. You know? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, we concur with David when he says that these academics, these being the unbiased, well, not unbiased, no one's unbiased, but you know, the ones who are trying to be unbiased, the secular scholars, these academics are surely our best bet to discover uh, unbiased information about any real historical Jesus. So maybe we should leave it up to the consensus of experts in the field and ask them what they say. 
a sound plan, except for one small problem. There is no consensus on Jesus. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. yeah. And so okay. this kicks off a section where David tries to illustrate that point by outlining 19 different conceptions of Jesus across four pages. He goes, he runs down the whole list. I'm not going to lay them all out, but there's a lot of them. And he finishes this list by saying that many of these that we just talked about were quite, are quite plausible, making a good sense of the number of, of gospel texts. They don't violate any historical method. They aren't anachronistic, et cetera. Um, none of them are particularly far-fetched. And yet, skipping ahead a few pages, he says, this multiplicity of convincing possibilities is precise, precisely the problem. The various scholarly reconstructions of Jesus cancel each other out. Each sounds good until you hear the next one. So wait a second. Is this like a math problem where you're still like crossing out all the things that, and then you end up with nothing? Is that, is that how this works? Kind of. I mean, if you have like J here and J on the bottom and you know, okay. Yeah. Cross, cross. Yeah. So I don't think he's completely off base, like completely out of left field in this criticism because he's not the first person to make this kind of criticism. Other scholars, uh, John Dominic Crossan, Bart Ehrman, many others have made kind of similar points in that, Hey, look at all of these Jesus conceptions. They can't all be right. Cause some of them are contra- contradictory, right? However, it's different than saying none of them can be right. And the conclusion that David seems to be drawing from this is therefore we should reject everything about all of these because they don't agree on the details. And he like points like, look, Ehrman's saying the same thing and Crossan saying the same thing, but they're not. What Ehrman and Crossan are talking about are uh, that some scholars seem to be going too far and trying to get too specific beyond what the evidence says, right? And some of them may be motivated by wanting to find the Jesus that they would like in the, the evidence, which is a valid criticism. However, that is not to say that all every single aspect of every single one of these conceptions are contradictory. The framing is super important. The point David is making is that we can't trust the consensus of experts on the Jesus of history because they all disagree. But like, do they? At least on the Jesus of history part. Do they on the important parts that we would need? So, I mean, it it helps to kind of think about some of these Jesus that are presented, like, right. So one of them, he gives an example of like Jesus, the homewrecker, and then Jesus, like the family man kind of thing. Right. Which um, those two are contradictory to an extent. Like you couldn't be all about family values and also all about destroying families. Right. Sure. There's a couple others that are arguably uh, contradictory. You've got uh, Jesus as first century proto communist and Jesus as like the, prosperity gospel like those are definitely two very different gs i okay fair enough uh but when you think about this though like we've used this example before and this is probably one of the most common examples out there if you have witnesses to a car accident you're going to get different stories with different details from everyone who saw the car accident right so like it was a red car it was a blue car well it can't be red and blue so but does that mean there was was no car there was a car though, right? right. Like, yeah. Like yeah. person A might think that the red car hit first. Person B might think the blue car hit first. Person C might be imagining a green car or whatever, but everybody there agrees there was a car accident and they're all telling you about it. Right. So you exactly. don't say, well, okay. All of these people disagree on their details. Therefore there was no car accident. Checkmate atheist or whatever, <laughs> you know, that's not how it works. So, and moreover, he, some of the Jesuses that he presents aren't even contradictory. 
He wants he he presents these the framing of this chapter. Yeah, the way is, he lists them all out, all nineteen of them. Lists them all out, and it's all about contradictions. Like this one can't be true, and this one can't be true. Like we've got all of these con- mutually exclusive Jesus, but that is not the case. For instance, one of the Jesuses he mentions is the magician slash miracle worker slash exorcist goes around, does miracles, cures people, whatever. Right? Well, that. Could be at that's a template that could be added to like basically any other Jesus. Like, there's nothing about being a proto Marxist that stops you from doing miracles. There's nothing about being a family man that was like, oh, well, you know, I believe in families so much, can't heal a blind, you know, (laughs) right? Like, that could be literally any other Jesus. It's not contradictory at all. Yeah. I mean, and so you have the the apocalyptic prophet, right? Conception of this too. So, um, even if he wasn't apocalyptic prophet, like in the sense of like the Old Testament, like, you know, Elisha, all the people coming through and prophesying, like he still had in his teachings, you can read apocalyptic methods and things that he was talking about the future coming and all of this stuff. So, right. The, if, you could, you, some scholars argue about like to what extent the apocalyptic portion of his message was primary. And so, like, but two people, like Marcus Borg, for instance, um, disagree, I think would, I think, I believe it's Borg would disagree with Ehrman. I know Crossan would on the level to which Jesus should be classified as apocalyptic prophet, not because he didn't fall under Jewish apocalypticism, but the not Ehrman scholars in this context, they think that that was less important to Jesus. That's their conception. But that doesn't mean like the two are contradictory. It's just like a minor difference in grade. Uh, another example is he he gives the apocalyptic prophet, which we're about to explain what that is in a second, uh, which David never does. Anyway, uh, he he says, uh, but then you've got Jesus as the Davidic heir, right? The the king heir, and he points to uh, tape. Excuse me, he points to Tabor's uh, book, the Jesus Dynasty. And again, the framing is that these are contradictory. No, they are not. I've read. I actually just read the Jesus Dynasty, and that. Jesus in there is apocalyptic as hell, man. That guy is like what apocalyptic guy, <laughs> you know? So those are like, like you could almost view it as a subset of the apocalyptic prophet genre. So the point is, it's not that we have 19 mutually exclusive Jesuses, none of which can coexist. Many of these models he throws out there can peacefully coexist with each other. Some are even subsets of the other. So it's a much more nuanced uh, field than he's giving it credit for. He wants you to ignore uh, all the similarities and focus solely on the differences because what he, he needs each and every single one of these to be wrong. Right. Right. Now it, it could very well be that David literally doesn't see how they could fit together. Like he could have the puzzle pieces all out there and he's like, they don't fit. It doesn't. Well, I mean, that might be Maybe. what he believes he's wrong. Yeah. But I'm, okay. I, I don't know. But I'm just saying like, I don't want to say like there's some nefarious things. No, there I'm not that saying he's, he's like, being dishonest. I'm yeah. just saying he's incorrect. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but I think we should get back to this apocalyptic prophet though. Right. Right. So speaking of apocalyptic prophets and Bart Ehrman, uh, one of the salient points that David brings up and he's quoting Bart Ehrman here is that any plausible reconstruction of Jesus has to explain how Jesus died. Right. So, uh, the quote that, that David uses is that the link between Jesus message and his death, it's crucial. Um, and you can basically paraphrasing, you can judge, you can evaluate a historical reconstruction by how well it explains why Jesus was killed. If for example, Jesus is to be understood as a Jewish rabbi who simply taught that everyone should love God and be good to another, then why did the Romans crucify him? Because it's not illegal to love people, right? 
And also, if you know he was a blasphemer and like violating Jewish religious law, you know who wouldn't care about that at all? The Romans. Like, what do they care? They would only care to the extent that it would cause like civil unrest. That's the only point right. they would care. So David takes that though, and then he runs with it. He says that Ehrman is right, but ironically, his own theory, the apocalyptic prophet theory, also suffers from the same problem since being an apocalyptic prophet wasn't illegal. And he accuses Ehrman of having to tack on additional assumptions in order to say why Jesus died. Now, he doesn't tell us what these assumptions are. He, has, he doesn't lay them out. He just says he does. He, he doesn't even say what Ehrman's model is, which is kind of weird since the apocalyptic prophet conception of Jesus is like the main one. It's the most popular one in scholarship. If there is a consensus, it's on that. Um, right. And so maybe Fitzgerald has a great reason as to why the reconstruction of Jesus as an apocalyptic prophet is wrong. I don't know. I can't know because he doesn't say. And more importantly, he leaves the reader who may not have read Ehrman like I have with an incomplete and inaccurate assumption, understanding of what Ehrman's view is. He doesn't he's say. Just saying, yeah. He just, he just states, says Ehrman's wrong. Boom. Ehrman's wrong. Ehrman believes apocalyptic prophet and that doesn't explain why Jesus was killed. So it doesn't fit and that's it. And Ehrman right. needs a bunch of assumptions. This part really bothered me because like you say, he doesn't say what those assumptions are. He doesn't explain uh, Ehrman's like main thesis and why it fits. Like he's definitely not steel manning them. That's for sure. And yeah. he's barely straw manning them. Like, <laughs> he's, he's not manning them at all. Cause he doesn't build yeah. anything like, and, and this is a disservice <laughs> to his audience because like we said, this is the dominant view of Jesus in the scholarship, not just now, but for decades past. So if you're going to write a book about why Jesus doesn't exist, you should probably make sure your audience at least has a basic understanding of this Jesus, if no other. Like maybe you don't want to spend your entire book outlining every conception of Jesus, but like if you're going to pick one, this would be the one, right? Fitzgerald references apocalypticism, Jewish apocalypticism. He references it as an idea and, Jew and Jesus being an apocalyptic prophet several times, but at least not in volume one, and I'm halfway through volume two, and I haven't seen it there. Nowhere in this entire book does he explain what being an apocalyptic prophet means. He just says the word as if his audience should know. Now, maybe if you're the type of kind of person who's picking up this book, maybe you should know that, I guess. Maybe that's the assumption David was making. But I think that's a mistake. I don't think that you should write this book with the assumption that a person has an in-depth understanding of the scholarship on this topic. Right. Yeah. So now that we've talked about it, let's move on to the next section here without explaining it. Um, yeah. Yeah, definitely. So you guys know what an apocalyptic <laughs> prophet is, so we don't need to say anything about it. No. Okay. So, so, so let's not make his mistake. Let's okay. tell you what an apocalyptic <laughs> prophet is. And this isn't our work. Obviously we're getting it from Bart Ehrman and other scholars. Again, this is a broad idea in scholarship. So to understand this, you have to understand something of what was going on at the time of the first century. And we're not going to spend the entire episode on it. Here's a quick primer that you don't get from David. Uh, in the first century, the Jews were being occupied by Rome. Israel was under foreign occupation, had been under foreign occupation for a long time. And this led to a lot of malcontent um, among the Jews. And there was an idea that came up a little bit before Jesus' time that the world was basically split into two camps. There was the evil camp. The bad camp, the not God camp, and then the God camp. That was a good one. And the bad one was in charge. That's why things suck. And they're going to get suckier and suckier until the end. 
But good news, guys, the end of the world is upon us. God is going to change all this. He's going to come down and he's going to flip things on its head. Those who are in power now are going to be cast out of power because if you're in power now, that means you're in line with the evil powers. Because they're the ones in charge, right? Mm. See? See? Okay. So uh, God's going to come. He's going to flip this out. All the people in power now, they're going to be cast down. The meek will be risen up. God will institute his new kingdom on earth. It will be a physical place you can go, and there will be a resurrection of the dead. The dead people are going to come back to life to be judged by God. Yep. So that's the basic thing. So if Jesus was an apocalyptic prophet, and he was in a major metropolis area, uh, and he was preaching this message uh, and being a rabble rouser and getting people to follow him and causing a stir enough to where just a couple municipal like people no- notice it. They would say, Hey, wait a second. That guy on the street corner over there is saying that we are going to be overthrown and that yeah. their God's going to, I don't like that. Yeah. Me as the Romans, I kind of like the present order and yeah. I don't think it's chill that you're saying it's going to go away. And in fact, what I'm going to do to show you how not chill it is, is I'm going to effing kill you in front of everyone. And then we'll see how popular your message is. Does anybody else want to talk about yeah. apocalypse? Anybody, anybody else <laughs> want to be a prophet? Anybody else? Yeah. This And so it, it's not hard to see how this message, like, oh, it's not illegal to be an apocalypticist. Okay, maybe. But that's only if you ignore everything there is to know about what it meant to be an apocalyptic prophet. Like, yes, it wasn't illegal to have beliefs, but it was illegal to say that there's going to be a new king. That's treason. It may not be illegal to have beliefs. It is illegal to uh, raise, to, to rile up the crowds and yeah. to tell them like, hey, the people in power now are literally on the side of the devil. Like, that's going to cause problems. That, and That's he, how rebellions start. <laughs> exactly. And this is not, the Romans are not stupid. They know what these things mean. They're not, they're not complete. They, they don't care about uh, Jewish religions. It doesn't mean they're ignorant of them. They just don't care about it. Right. So they're not ignorant of what's going on. And this isn't like supposition on our part. We have historical records that I know David's aware of because he quotes them later uh, from Josephus of other people around Jesus time mm-hmm. who were preaching similar messages. And you know what happened to them? They all died at the hands of the Romans. <laughs> so. Yeah. And so this point here, like it's, it's obvious why this should have been mentioned. It took us just a couple minutes to highlight this. David could have d- devoted a couple paragraphs to this. Like, I understand when you're writing a book, you got to choose to leave some things out. This, this shouldn't have been one thing. of them. Yeah. This is a big point. And yeah. like, maybe, maybe Ehrman's wrong. Maybe all, of, maybe all the scholars who have this idea is wrong. Maybe. The, the story we just told you, the conception of how an apocalyptic prophet would lead to the Romans killing him, maybe we're completely off base. And David has excellent reasons for why this would not lead to Jesus' execution. Okay, you have to actually give those. Like, all he said was, there's no way to get from here to there. Well, we just showed you how it's very easy to get from here to there. So yeah. if you want to argue that we're wrong or Ehrman's wrong, fair enough. But just to to say blithely that there is no possible connection is really misleading, and it's a disservice to your audience. 
Yeah, and at the very least, you would have to point out to why Jesus couldn't have been an apocalyptic right. prophet, right? That would be one avenue. You could say yeah. that the apocalyptic idea, and I think that David wouldn't even be alone in saying this. There are scholars yeah. who don't think that Jesus was an apocalyptic prophet, so he could have argued that point if he wanted to, but he didn't. Uh, he does point to one scholar, E.P. Sanders, um, and he so he quotes E.P. Sanders as saying, no one has been able to say why Jesus' teachings would have compelled the Romans to execute Jesus. Now, Fitzgerald doesn't actually cite Sanders. He cites Mac, who is citing Sanders, and the citation he gives is wrong. He says it's the book, The Christian Myth, uh, but the book is, um, or he says the book is The Christ Myth. It's actually The Christian Myth, whatever that's quibbling. It, it didn't matter. It took me 30 seconds to find a free copy of this book. And here's the thing. David is using this quote to undergird the point I just talked to you about. That uh, there's no path from what Jesus, who Jesus was, his teachings, to his death. And that this is a huge glaring problem in scholarship. And look, here's a scholar saying it, right? But that's not what Sanders is saying if you actually read the book. And you don't need to go far. It's like page four. Like I didn't, I didn't sit down and read this whole book. I just started like, like skimming it to see like the, to find the quote. And I found the quote. And so what Sanders is saying is that if you only focus on the sayings, the words of Jesus and don't look at his actions, such as cleansing the temple, then he says, it makes it difficult to link Jesus as a teacher to Jesus, the Jew who was crucified. And so he said, he's basically saying you can't go from like the sermon on the Mount and things like that to Jesus being crucified. <laughs> but the whole point of the book is to argue that there is a connection between Jesus acts and the crucifixion. This is not a problem that you Sanders say, Oh, this is an unsolved thing. He's saying, Hey, if you don't take into account everything we know about Jesus, then you're missing the picture. You shouldn't be doing that. And here's what, here's the solution, right? This is like someone quoting the abstract where they often like describe the problem and then ignoring the paper where they solve the problem. <laughs> But there's a problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So along these lines, David actually seems to be conflating the crucifixion by the Romans um, and being sentenced to death by the Sanhedrin. Because in that same paragraph that you just talked about, where he is citing Mac, who's citing Sanders, um, David highlights uh, Geza Vermis and a few others. I'm not going to name them. If you want, go read the book. Uh, you should do that anyways. Uh, where he's pointed out that for Jesus's trial. Nothing he is accused of amounts to blasphemy in the first place. And he adds an exclamation point. Like he just like, it's settled. It's done. Nothing in Jesus's trial amounts to blasphemy in the first place. I, Which I like, just, yeah. So, so what he's saying is like, look, Jesus was, wasn't crucified for blasphemy. You know, none of this is even blasphemy. Which like he he wasn't crucified for blasphemy. He was crucified for treason. Yeah. yeah. And the. <laughs> The Romans don't give an F about blasphemy at all. Like they don't care about that. I mean, they, they would, if it meant that the King was going to get overthrown or something. Right. Right. But they, they would care only to the extent that if you were blaspheming was causing a riot, then they would care. Right. Yeah, but they like would when, care because you caused a riot, not because. <laughs> right. Exactly. And uh, the people who would care about blaspheming is the Sanhedrin. And so, like, the story in the Gospels that we get is sometimes, like, the Sanhedrin was plotting against Jesus to because he blasphemed and he was doing all this stuff to get him killed, right? But if we're 
if we're actually looking at this from a historical standpoint, what we can try to prove historically, what's most probable historically, if Jesus was an apocalyptic prophet and was preaching this message, as we've already outlined, that's enough for the Romans to do their deed, yeah. right? You don't, you don't have to sweet talk uh, Pontius Pilate into crucifying a dude. Pontius, so we've, we've mentioned this a lot, but the Pontius Pilate you get from the Gospels is this wishy-washy, oh, golly gee, guys, I wouldn't want to offend you. Please let me release Jesus. I don't want to hurt anybody. Yeah, like, yeah. That's the kind of Pontius Pilate you get. That was not Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate was a brutal dictator by the standards of the Romans, and they did some brutality. Like, the Romans made brutal, brutal rule into an art form, and Pontius Pilate was, like, so over the top there, they dialed him back. <laughs> <You're> like, <laughs> Reel it back in, buddy. Yeah. So, I, yeah. I just find this disturbing. Like, does, does David actually think that Jesus was crucified for blasphemy? Because that's what it makes it seem like here. I don't know. I, trying to be charitable, perhaps he's like, because he started by talking about um, these messages not offending the Romans. Maybe he's trying to say that um, even if you think he was bla- he was killed for blasphemy, this wouldn't be blasphemy. That's the steel man that I could see. Uh, but it doesn't really matter. It's kind of irrelevant because he yeah, wasn't yeah. killed for blasphemy. He was killed by the Romans and he was killed for treason. Right. Uh, that's, this, that's the conflation that bothers me because yeah. he, the way you presented, if you don't know the stuff that we've talked about, then that would make sense. Oh, well, of course he wasn't crucified. So therefore he couldn't yeah. have been crucified. Right. Um, so, okay. So let's move on from the different conceptions of Jesus. Uh, next, David starts talking about the impact that Jesus made in history. And he's trying to make the point that Jesus couldn't have been famous or couldn't like, why Jesus? Why do we talk about Jesus now? Uh, Because he gives, he being David, gives a bunch of other examples of messianic figures, John the Baptist, Apollonius of Tiana, Judas of Galilee, etc. And then he states, but every one of these these being the people I just talked about, the other messianic figures, was able to accomplish something that Jesus could not. How did loser messianic figures like the Teheb and Jonathan the Weaver and the rest manage to leave a historical footprint, but not Jesus? Bro, that's the entire, that's the whole book, man. That's like the (laughs) point of the book you're trying to make. Like that's begging the question. That's it like really is. That's the beganist question. That's, that's the biggest (laughs) begging question ever. Like, how That's why he, we're reading your book to get that answer. Like right, like that that bugs me. Like so, he's asserting the entire thesis of his book, which is that Jesus did not leave a historical footprint. But if you look, so we would argue Jesus did leave a historical footprint. He got four books written about him and like a freaking hundred letters. You know, like he had a whole he had a whole met the movement. That was named after him. So that's that's what bothers me because it gets to this next point where he, he, right after that, he starts talking about, you know, if there was no record of him, then how could he have inspired a tiny religion to grow across, you know, the Roman Empire? Like, how could somebody who was so insignificant, who didn't even leave a historical record, inspire inspire this movement? Like, gee, I can't think of any possible way that you could go from a small number of followers to a large number of followers. Man, I never thought of that. I, I, in fact, there is no mechanism. There is no possible mechanism to convince a small number of people to go from a small number of people convinced to more people convinced. Never happened. Right. Well, so, but hold, hold your horses here, Jordan, because this is if David is correct and the mythicists are correct. It's even worse for them 
Because right. their their thing starts with a guy who's a myth, not even a real person. And all that stuff actually happens. Yeah. So in either way, you have a small number of people who are convinced of a thing. And then those small number of people grow and convince other people. David's thing is those small number of people are convinced of a thing that's a story and didn't exist. Our thing is they're convinced of a thing that is a guy and, you know, legendary development and right. stuff. Either way, it's the same thing. That. This is this is ridiculous. It's an absurd point to make. Like, so th- this here's another. Uh, th- this is a theme that happens where David I don't know forgets what book he's writing because the last book that he wrote before Mything in Action nailed. Nailed. Yeah. That book was intended to be fighting or arguing against the Jesus of faith and saying how the Jesus as portrayed in the Gospels could not have happened exactly as portrayed. Okay, fair enough. What this point could be arguing against is that the Jesus, as presented in the Gospels, who's someone who's like converting hundreds and thousands of people and has these huge followings or whatever, and then like he comes back and like there's earthquakes and dead people walking around in the streets and stuff like that never happened. Okay, but nobody who's supposed to be reading this book thinks that happened, right? That's not the point we're making. Right. So, yes, we both agree that that didn't happen. That doesn't mean that you couldn't have a Jesus – who was very similar to these other messianic figures, which, by the way, those other messianic figures is evidence for Jesus to the extent that it shows that Jesus as a figure is historically plausible. Yes. Within the context, he is a person that is very much like other people we knew existed, which naturally makes it more likely to be true. Not necessarily, that's not sufficient evidence or anything all by itself, but like this clearly shows that Jesus isn't anachronistic. Right. And the other part of that too is this is what bothers me a lot of times with mythicists is they're like, well, if Jesus was doing miracles and was doing all these things, then he clearly would have made a historical, made the historical record. But that's not what we're saying happen. We're saying there was a guy who just ended up in Jerusalem around the Passover preaching the the apocalyptic method and got on the, the Romans radar. And they were like, nope, you're done. And that's it. And he died. And then some people were upset about it. And through some kind of experience, believe that Jesus rose from the dead after that. And then from there, everything follows. If you want to see a full breakdown, last episode, episode three, talking about the medical facts, we talked all about what we think happened to Jesus. But the point is, you, you don't... <laughs> the you don't point need is a historical record to have all that stuff happen. <laughs> right. It, it, you could easily go from a person who was at the time insignificant to becoming more significant later. Someone doesn't need to start significant to become significant at a later time. The only re- the reason there is no historical record is because at the time, Jesus wasn't a super his- significant figure. Though, it is worth pointing out that there are lots of people who would be very important that we don't have great records for from history because stuff just doesn't stick around a lot of times. There are like entire emperors of Rome that like there's almost nothing on. And these are emperors of like the rulers of the most important nation yeah. on earth at the time. You know, and we might have his name. <laughs> so We're lucky we have what we have, right? So right. that's so one of the, the problems is, looking at history though. So yeah. So the point is Jesus did what we think we are arguing that Jesus did make an impression in history. He made an impression through his followers, through the gospels, through the letters of Paul, through the works of Tacitus and the works of Josephus. If you think those are wrong, fine, but argue about it. Present an argument. Don't just uh, present it as an assertion. That's yeah. bad form. Okay. So one of my problems with this this entire method of thinking that David seems to be applying here is that he's criticizing people who are trying to reconstruct the historical person of Jesus 
based on these legendary accounts we have in the gospel, like you may argue whether they're legendary or not. We think they're legendary. Okay. And then saying that because this doesn't work, he's claiming that there never was a Jesus. So because you can't recreate the historical Jesus based on the legendary Jesus, there was no Jesus at all. So there, sorry. Right. That so, to me is like, you want to explain that? Well, more? it could, it's, it's like, just because we don't know every single thing Jesus did, we don't have a full crystal clear picture of Jesus. Doesn't mean there was no Jesus. Right. So to me, this is like taking a, um, taking a wet noodle that you do. I had spaghetti for dinner. So taking a boiled spaghetti noodle and like holding it out in the air and saying, look, it's not straight. It's not flat. It's not going. It, so it clearly, around. clearly, therefore there never could have been a straight, hard, dry noodle that exists in the first place. Right. Checkmate. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a complete non sequitur. So yeah. yeah, to to sum up everything so far, the just because there are contradictions in specific reconstruction of Jesus doesn't mean that there was no Jesus. It doesn't mean that there's no scholarly consensus. All of the scholars that Je- that he cited disagree with David on Jesus' existence, right? They may disagree with each other on the exact nature of Jesus, but they all agree that Jesus existed, and that's something that shouldn't be swept under the rug. And also, you should it's it's sloppy. This entire chapter is sloppy. It doesn't go into the detail it should in the places that um that it needs to. Yeah. So speaking of sloppy, uh, and speaking of of experts. So we're going to close out with one point that we wrestled a lot about how to bring it up because like we said before, we don't think David's a bad guy. We, we spoke we, to him. We like David. Him. We like yeah. David. He's a, he's a cool guy. I would go out and, and have a beer with him right now. And I think sure. he'd be okay. And uh, I don't think he's intentionally dishonest in this book. I don't think that was his intention. I think he believes everything he's saying. And I think he's trying his best. That said, the way that this section was written is unfortunate. So the specifically the part that's the list of all the different types of Jesuses. Yeah. So he talks about the different 19 types that I mentioned, right? He kicks this off uh, by saying that he's describing all the different, uh, the cornucopia of Christ, he says. And here's the words he says. A quick survey, parentheses, Robert Price presents excellent examples in his Deconstructing Jesus, close parentheses, shows we have quite an embarrassment of Jesai colon list now and then for several pages we get a list we get list stuff after stuff after stuff right me as a reader what what i understand from the thing i just read to you what i understand is that price gives some great examples here's a list of all the examples i the the author have here's my work showing all the different contradictions that's the understanding i get as a reader so I didn't get that understanding as a reader because I was reading it and I was like, this, this, there's something off here. Right. So what I did is I said, where's he getting this information? I went back up on the thing and I said, okay, deconstructing Jesus. I went out, I purchased Robert Price's book, deconstructing Jesus. And I started reading it. There are things in that book that David is literally, he's basically lifted this entire section from Bob Price's book and just paraphrase that put it in there. But there's examples where David is literally listing out like scholars, like verbatim in order in the same order that price is putting them in there. And then just rephrasing the, 
the example that Price was trying to make and put it in his own thing, which is fine. You're, if you're going to cite somebody, you got to paraphrase them. I totally get that. But you need to cite them. That's yeah. the thing. So the problem we have here is that what it appears David did is he scooped up Price's work, he put it in his own book, changed a few words around, and then said, here it is. Now, he does almost kind of sort of halfway cite him at the beginning. But the point of a citation is to tell the people that are reading your book, hey, this thing that I'm citing is not my work. It is this other person's work, right? Right. And you can paraphrase it. You can do whatever you need to do from it, but it should be clear and unambiguous. It's the whole point of a citation that this is not my work. You're crediting the other author. Yeah, because this the way this section reads, as Jordan says, it's like he just read that, and then you start reading this 19 list over several pages of Jesus, like – you don't know that Bob Price is now talking about the apocalyptic Jesus or that he's talking about the miracle working Jesus, or he's talking about the, these other Jesuses, right? You forgot it at that point. Moreover. Yeah. You don't know that this is Price's work at all. You don't know that you think this is David's work. Based, yeah. Right? Based on how it was presented. Right. Which, and you also don't know who Robert Price is. So this is another uh, critique I have for the book in general is that I understand that David Fitzgerald is a mythicist himself. So he, Carrier and Price are just as legitimate as scholars, in his opinion, as others, and he views them highly. Okay. Let's, ha- let's read the room. The fact is they're mythicists, which makes them fringe. Like it or not, you may disagree with that. You, you may not like that characterization, but they are. It is, a, it is a fact that Richard Carrier is on the fringe of Jesus history studies, and so is Robert Price, and so is every other mythicist. And so you owe it to your audience to tell them when you're quoting another mythicist. Because if you're saying, hey, here's a point and here's a bunch of scholars that agree with me, it is very different if all of those scholars or most of them are mainstream consensus scholars who don't agree with your point. That like you're basically showing how the oppositions serve your point. That is very different than saying, hey, look, here's a list of other Jesus mythicists who agree with me. That doesn't mean they're wrong, but it is a very different piece of evidence that should be viewed differently by the the audience. They at least deserve to know what the biases, what what kind of sources you're presenting them. But if right. you just read the book, it, there there's no way to know. He just get, here's a bunch of people: Carrier, Price, Doherty. You know, he just lists them all out as if they are equal credentials, equal respect, equal everything. Yeah, that whole thing just it it bothers me as somebody who my my undergrad was in history. Somebody who's like spent time like going through microfilms and like reading old papers and old things and like doing the legwork of getting the site, the, the site citation that I needed, putting it in a work and then publishing it or, you know, giving it to a professor and then to read it. Like if somebody were just to take that and like just use it without giving me credit, like, come on, I did the legwork. Like, come on. Yeah. Like it, it, all it would take is according to Bob Price, a mythicist, boom. Exactly. Like. Exactly. It would it would have taken no more ink than he already said. He could have yeah. said he, he could have said Bob Price gives us a quick survey in his book Deconstructing Jesus Colon. Then it is clear that you're giving Bob Price's survey. Right? So, I, I so I think he thinks he did that though. I, I yes. Yeah, so I what I think trying to be charitable, I think his intent was that that was his citation and that's what he's trying to communicate. I think it's communicated very poorly. And that does not come across. At least it doesn't come across to me. It didn't come across to Jared. Maybe somebody else might disagree. But I think it would behoove uh, David 
in the next edition of the book to be more diligent and like explicit when he's citing and when he's using his own work. Yeah. Um, I think, I think we can leave it at that. Um, it, if for me, the last thing I'll say about this, it just, it rubs me the wrong way because it makes it seem like David is trying to pass this off as his own research and his own scholarly work when Which it's again, not. Even if that wasn't the intent, the appearance is important. Yeah. It makes it seem, I just want to make it that yeah. I'm reading it. So, okay. So that's the end of chapter three. Uh, I wish I could say that is the end of David's attempt to undermine the field of biblical scholarship. It's not. There are several more chapters on that. I don't think that's a coincidence because David knows that, like it or not, he is well outside of the consensus here. And so he has to undermine the audience's confidence in the experts because if he doesn't, nobody's going to believe him. Right? So uh, we're going to keep trucking along with this review. Let us know what you thought. Uh, if there's something that you think we missed, or if you hate this book and don't want us to talk about it anymore, please let us know that too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be helpful because, because honestly, this is, this is a chore going yeah. through it. Like it, it's work. This is not easy. We're doing this. We're doing this for the greater good. So let us know if it's landing. So to recap, there are many different conceptions of Jesus in the scholarship. It is a true and accurate statement that not all of them can be true simultaneously in all of their details. And there is definitely some projection going on of people's modern day conceptions going back into Jesus. People are definitely taking what they would like to be true and projecting it onto Jesus. That yeah. is a completely valid criticism uh, that we think David is right to make. We think David is wrong to say, therefore, none of this work can be trusted. We should throw it all away. He doesn't say those exact words, but that's the tone. And so we think that instead of just highlighting the differences, we should also look at the similarities. And the, the fact is that these different conceptions of Jesus are far more alike than they are different. Uh, some of them are, that he gives aren't even contradictory at all. Uh, there are connections between some of these models and how Jesus died. One of those models is the apocalyptic prophet, which we talked about, definitely leads to Jesus' death. And so it's simply not the case that scholars don't have an idea of how Jesus died. They do. David may think they're wrong, but he needs to actually argue that instead of just assert it. Right. So, like, comment, subscribe, do all the YouTube stuff. Let us know what you think in these uh, comments. We'll be hitting another chapter of the book, Jesus Mything in Action, probably next month. We're trying to do about once a month. Uh, but until next time, remember, you've always got reason to doubt. Peace out.